Our sermon text today is from the book of Esther. This is a fantastic book. Geniusly crafted. We're going to look... I'll read Esther chapter 4, verses 8 through 14. But we're going to cover a bunch throughout this morning. So, turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. Follow along in verse 8. Mordecai also gave Esther's servant a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther and what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads before the king and ask him to be merciful to us. God, we have spent much time teaching that your gathered people now in Christ are your temple, your inner court, your throne room. And you have allowed us to walk into your throne room without fear of death. You have invited us in by the righteous blood of Jesus Christ to hear your decrees to enjoy your comforts, to experience your provision, and to be equipped by your Spirit. So I pray, God, that right now You would use this Word to comfort us in our sorrows, to strengthen us in our convictions, and to equip us for our mission. That King Jesus would be glorified in our homes, in our gathering, and to the ends of the earth. Amen. In the aftermath of World War I, Germany was an embarrassed people. They suffered many problems because of their humiliating defeat. But the German people, as I am one, are quite stubborn, and they determined to fight back, eager to rise up stronger than ever before. And among those stubborn Germans was one passionate young one in particular named Adolf Hitler. He dreamed of a powerful, prosperous Germany and desired to inspire his brothers and sisters to rebuild their homeland better than it was before. All they needed was something 
One thing to rally around. One, maybe people to blame all their problems on. To give them a unified focus. And as you know, that unified focus became the Jewish people. When Hitler began to gain a little bit of influence, he explained his plan if he were ever in charge of Germany. He told a friend, if I am ever really in power, the destruction of the Jews will be my first and most important job. As soon as I have power, I shall have gallows after gallows erected. For example, in Munich, in the Marienplatz, as many of them as traffic allows, then the Jews will be hanged one after another, and they will stay hanging until they stink. They will stay hanging as long as hygienically possible. As soon as they are untied, then the next group will follow. And that will continue until the last Jew in Munich is exterminated. Exactly the same procedure will be followed in other cities until Germany is cleansed of the last Jew. I can't even tell you how painful it is to read that. How can someone even think let alone speak such things. Yet this is what God or Satan has been inspiring in wicked people throughout history to destroy God's people. The Jewish people have faced multiple attempts at exterminations many times throughout history. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all of them tried different methods of getting rid of Israel. But every single time, God preserved His people. And today in the book of Esther, we're going to look one at another story. One more time, the Jewish people faced the threat of extinction. And another time that God delivered them. This is the repeated story of Israel. But not just Israel. It's the story of all God's people from the beginning of time to today through His church. The story of Esther is a reminder to us that Satan is constantly working to exterminate God's people. He is a powerful enemy that would like nothing better than to embarrass us, distract us, or get rid of us. Sometimes it's through threats of physical harm. Other times, he just wants to keep us busy doing all kinds of other things other than the one thing he has, God has told us to do to proclaim our trust in Him. And we are called in the face of that to stand firm against Satan and his crafty schemes. And when it appears that our enemy is too great, too powerful... Even when it's difficult to see that God is present, we must remember that God's hand, His invisible hand, is providentially working to place you right where you are that you would stand with His covenant people. God has providentially placed you right where you are to stand with His covenant people Sometimes this world is going to put enormous pressure, as some of you are already feeling even this week, enormous pressure on you to conform to its ways. And it feels like so often you don't have any choice but to go along with it or suffer great harm. It'll cost you everything. But Esther shows us how to escape this defeatist 
victim mentality and stand firm in God's promises. And this book is expertly crafted, obviously by God's Spirit, yes, but the author puts so much detail and thought into making this point. The structure is formed around three sets of feasts right at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end that show us God's control over all things. At the beginning, the king of Persia has a feast where he celebrates his own power and wealth. He's so mighty. And in that context, the Jewish people find themselves as nothing but tragic victims. We'll see that in the first three chapters. And then in chapters 4 and 5, the next feast introduces us to the faithful witnesses. God's people finally overcome their fatalism. They stand firm on His covenant promises. And as a result, everything turns around in dramatic reversals as God's people become triumphant saints in the final few chapters. And the story ends with another feast. God's people exalted to the highest places and celebrating with a feast God's faithfulness. And the genius of the entire story is that not one time is God's name mentioned in the whole book. The author appears to be going out of his way to avoid using any name, any title for God, and yet he's being extremely deliberate at the same time to show in all of these things, God is in absolute control of every detail. He wants us to know that even if you can't see Him, God is active, working to keep His promises. You don't need to fear those who are in power or fight back in some revolution. God is sovereign over the highest rulers. You don't need to fear that faithfulness might lead you to death. God is sovereign over life. His people simply must do what is right and trust God to providentially work out the details to care for them. Now I'm going to do something a little risky here. Traditionally, when the story of Esther is read in families yearly on the Feast of Purim, which celebrates these events, Jewish kids would dress up, boys dress up as Mordecai and little girls dress up as Esther. And the story would be read, and every time they hear Mordecai's name, the kids would cheer, woohoo! And every time they hear the name of the bad guy, Haman, the kids say, boo! So I'm inviting all you kids to listen carefully to the sermon. And anytime you hear Mordecai, you may let out a woohoo with a little more enthusiasm. And anytime you hear the name Haman, you can say boo. Just once, don't drag it out because there's a lot of Mordecais and Hamans. Okay? You get it? All right, let's give it a shot. So let's look and see how this story unfolds, starting with our tragic victims. So the book starts off telling the story of how great the Persian king is. The entire first chapter is all about his power and his wealth. It starts off, verse 1, Now in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, 
In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat down on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. For six months, the king holds a huge feast and invites everyone to come party with him just to show off how rich and powerful he is. We hear about his wealth. We hear about how big his kingdom is. We hear about how many people serve him. And we hear nothing about the Jewish people. The whole first chapter, all about Persia. The implication is that the Jews are nothing. Nobodies. Helpless minorities in this powerful nation. They've been conquered, taken out of their homeland. Now they suffer as an insignificant people right under the thumbs of a wealthy and powerful king. Not until chapter 2 are we introduced to the first Jewish person. His name is Mordecai. (laughs) And he's raising his younger cousin Hadassah called Esther. Esther is a Persian name because they want to try to hide her identity. See, at first, neither of these two look like much of a hero. They don't care much at all about their Jewish identity. They're trying to hide it, actually. Hide it under a bushel? Yes. We don't ever hear about them talking about the law, obeying the covenant. They even go along with extremely ungodly things like the king's beauty pageant to find himself a new wife. You see, this mighty, wise, godlike king had a brief moment of foolishness during this big feast when he called his wife to come in and dance before all the people to show off that he has the most beautiful wife of all. And yet when he commanded her to come out, she said no. Embarrassing the king, threatening His perception of power or his own wife doesn't even respond to him. So to prove that he had control in the sight of all the people, he got rid of his wife and he issued a nationwide mandate that all men control their wives. That doesn't make any sense. I can't control mine, but you better control yours. This is just what rulers do when they don't have control. Anybody in authority issues mandates to gain control over things that they don't have control of themselves. But now, this guy needs a new wife. So he issues another decree. Call all the beautiful young single women to come and live in this house together. And let's get them all prettied up. Dress them up so they look gorgeous and one at a time bring them into my inner courts, into my palace. And we'll see which one, night after night, brings me the most pleasure. It's disgusting. And Esther goes along with this. Mordecai encourages her. We got one. They keep her identity a secret. They don't want to cause any trouble for the Jewish people. They don't want anyone to think that they're dangerous. So they just try to go along. And he strives, Mordecai, even strives to show his allegiance to the Persian king by 
by foiling a secret plot to assassinate him. He he uncovers this plot that these guys are conspiring to kill the king and he tells on them. He says, I'm for the Persians. I want my neighbors to thrive. You might say he's trying to love his neighbors by not trying to stir up division. Well, as luck would have it, Esther just happens to be chosen as queen. Things are going pretty well for the Jewish people. You know, all things considered, they're not in their homeland. So hopefully nobody rocks the boat. And then we meet Haman. Yes. He's in chapter 3. He was the king's highest in command and he was drunk on power. He forced everybody to bow down to him. Everyone that is except Mordecai. Somehow, this was the last straw. Something snapped in his mind. Mordecai would not go that far. Sure, the king deserved honor as the ruler, but this guy was a usurper. He was trying to steal authority that does not belong to him. Mordecai could see right through Haman. And he revealed that because of his own Jewish identity. Finally, he comes out with it. He cannot submit to this ungodly authority. And in response, Haman determined not just to get back at him, but exterminate all the Jews. He's so vindictive that he manipulates the king to issue a decree to wipe out every last Jewish person in all 127 provinces of the empire. He was going to earn his place in history's glory by rallying the kingdom around the destruction of the Jews. This sounds so familiar. And of course, because the king is, just loves to show off that his decrees are powerful, he goes along with it. Now, let's see what this does. Leaving all of the Jewish people weeping and lamenting as tragic victims. What are God's people to do? This is hopeless. The decree is irreversible. These people are nobodies. They have no strength, no influence to fight back. They just, they tried to get along with their neighbors and they're still trapped. This one guy ruined it for everyone. But it was also this one guy that realized what the Jewish people were called to be. They had been appointed by God to be faithful witnesses. Faithful witnesses who remind all of the nations that there is someone in a far higher authority over all of them. And so we read the turning point in the story in chapter 4, verses 8 to 14. I read these already. They're important. I'll read them again. Mordecai. Mordecai also gave Esther's servant a copy of that written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on the behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai 
and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself, young lady, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I'm not sure what got into Mordecai that gave him just this sudden clarity. But he could no longer stand for his people losing their identity and their purpose in this foreign land. He called Esther to take a stand. She heard the words and she had to seriously consider the cost. She tells her cousin that she can't approach the king. He has decreed that you can't come into the king's presence uninvited. Only the king can invite you in. If you show up, it leads to your death. And who would willingly walk to their death just to maintain some religious identity? Well, yeah, there was that small hope that he could hold out the scepter and be merciful. That's true. Waive the death penalty. But the king had already shown himself not to be very merciful towards disobedient wives. Mordecai, though, responds with covenantal confidence in God's promises for his people. First, he reminds Esther that all the Jewish people have been declared dead. She's Jewish. Just because she lives in the palace doesn't mean she's going to escape this decree. Eventually, someone is going to out her. Someone is going to expose her identity. But more certainly, without invoking God's name, he expresses confidence that deliverance will come. He knows God has promised to endure his people. God has always promised and delivered a rescuer. So if Esther won't do it, someone else is going to. Even more, he says, he trusts in God's providence. The word providence means God's control over every detail from the greatest of the galaxies down to the tiniest of subatomic particles and all the decisions made in history. God is sovereign over them all. And he believes that God has put Esther right in this position, right at this time, for this very purpose. Even with all of her weaknesses, her own sins, hiding and going along with the culture, God's using it. 
God has providentially placed her there to stand with his people. And so inspired by this confidence that God is at work, Esther says, I'll do it. I'll approach the king. I will march into that throne room and face death so my people can maintain their unified identity. She asks that they fast on her behalf. Interesting, it doesn't say she prayed because pray means make a request to God. So still kind of secretive. And she says in verse 16, if I perish, I perish. She will do the right thing for God's people, even if it costs her life. In chapter 5, she plans out her strategy just to be sure that she can stay on the king's good side while exposing the evil plot of Haman. Boo! Verse 1 gives a little hint of the dramatic turnaround that's about to happen. It begins on the third day. On the third day. You know where this is going to end up, right? Throughout Scripture, the third day symbolizes deliverance. So by throwing that phrase in there, the author is telling us things are about to change. New life is about to come. And the next verses show that Esther walks into the throne room and the king doesn't execute her. The king is merciful. And he gladly joins her feast. This middle feast that becomes the turning point of the story where Haman's own plot turns upon himself. From this point on, everything flips on its head and God's people become triumphant saints. As Haman plots to kill Mordecai and all the Jews, the king just happens to have trouble sleeping. Chapter 6 tells us, On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. That'll help him sleep. The Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So his servant just happens to read the very story, this particular story about Mordecai rescuing the king, which causes the king to realize he never rewarded him for saving his life. And so he brings his trusted advisor, Haman. He brings him in and asks him, hey, if you were going to honor someone really important that did a really good deed, what would you do? And believing that the king wanted to honor him, Haman comes up with this great plan of parading himself around through town as this really important person. And then a cascade of plot reversals comes pouring down in favor of God's people. Even though Haman thought he was so important, the king commanded him to parade Mordecai around town dressed in royal splendor. And after that, instead of Mordecai weeping and lamenting, now Haman is the one weeping and lamenting. 
just the night before, Haman's wife was telling him, urging him to go after Mordecai. But now his wife sees something's working against you. Your life is at risk. When Esther exposes Haman at her feast, the pole that he had erected to execute Mordecai becomes the very instrument that the king uses to execute Haman. After Haman's death, the king takes off the signet ring he gave to him, signifying the authority and power he gave to him, and places it on the hand of Mordecai. And Esther convinces the king to issue a counter decree that says the Jewish people can fight back against all who would seek to annihilate them. The king exalts Mordecai to the highest authority in the land where in the beginning of the book, the city was thrown into confusion. Now they are full of joy. The people are so overjoyed at what's happened that many of these Persians are becoming Jewish. They're worshiping the Jewish God. All because this one little act of faithfulness, this willingness to face death, to maintain the identity of God's people. It all cascaded into a rush of God's fulfilled promises. And in the end, in contrast to the king's feast boasting in his own greatness, the last chapters tell us about the people of Israel feasting in thanks to God preserving them. Friends, this isn't just a really cool story about a couple of people who were faithful thousands of years ago. This is your story as well. Satan hates God's people. And he's doing everything he can to plot your demise. It was Satan who inspired Haman. It was Satan who inspired Adolf Hitler. And it is the same adversary who's inspiring others to divide God's people. He'll use worldly authorities to test our allegiance. He'll use the allure of safety and comfort and prosperity in our country to challenge your identity. And we have choices to make. Are we going to go along just to get along with our neighbors? Or are we going to stand with God's people? We can't be fooled into thinking like Esther that if we are just really nice to people and we go along, that your life will go much better because eventually, as Mordecai says, your faith or your lack of faith will be exposed. Our call is to trust the invisible providence of God to keep His promises, to stand firm with His people. We have an identity to pass on to the next generation to maintain this unified, worshiping witness that proclaims to the world the authority of the King of Kings over all other rulers. And we maintain this identity, this focus, even when it seems like the tide of culture is too strong or authorities are proclaiming threats against our well-being. We're to remain faithful because God is at work, even if we can't see Him. Throughout the book of Esther, there's a lot of things that just happen that make you think, well, that's quite a coincidence. 
But we don't believe in coincidence. We believe in providence. God is working while Satan is scheming. We don't need to read the tea leaves or wait for dreams or listen for quiet whispers to find out what God wants us to do. Like Mordecai, we must remain faithful to what he has already said, to what he has written, and trust him to take care of the details. When God's people are faithful to his commands, he promises to one day reverse our fortunes and exalt us out of our tragic circumstances. That's the picture and the promise of the Gospel. This whole book in so many wonderful ways that I don't have time to explore shows us the promise of Christ. Just as God had promised, just at the right time, He brought a Deliverer, King Jesus. One who would end all oppression, who would cut it off right at the source, right at Satan's deception, and right at human rebellion. When it looked like the world had won, that the powers and authority had overcome Christ on the cross, on the third day, On the third day, He burst out of the grave. He rose to His throne in heaven, poured out His Spirit to allow every one of us bold access through His mercy into the throne room of God. And now He advances this kingdom throughout the whole earth, much larger than the Persian kingdom. He advances it through His Spirit-filled people who stand together. The same Jesus, the same Spirit is at work in you when you turn away from your sin, when you reject this defeatist victim mentality and trust confidently in His promises guaranteed by His death and resurrection. This is not a call to us to go start a violent revolution or chase after every evildoer. Maybe get more involved in politics Or work really hard to to achieve the heights of worldly success so you can have an influential voice. We're called to ordinary faithfulness. Wherever God has placed you. Be an excellent engineer. Or bellman. Or mover. Be an excellent researcher. Or mother. Work on making your marriage passionately proclaim the love of Christ. Raise your children to confidently root their identity in Christ. Be a nurse to the glory of God that tells your patients how to find eternal healing in the blood of Jesus. And in all of that, stay locked arm in arm with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Wherever you are, God has providentially placed you in that spot to stand with His covenant people. Do all your work faithfully trusting the promises of God to work all things together by His invisible but mighty hand. Refuse to give up this identity as His assembled people who are unified by the blood of Christ. And when you do that, He promises to turn your ordinary faithfulness 
into a cascade of reversals that culminate in your resurrection to eternal life. Like Esther, we must be willing to say, if I perish, I perish. Sometimes faithfulness will cost us our lives. Whether it's by persecution or a plague. But God promises to raise us from the dead, clothe us in royal splendor, parade us around His glorious kingdom, and throw us an eternal feast in celebration of His power to deliver His people. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, give us this confidence like Esther and Mordecai that this identity in Christ, this identity as brothers and sisters, this identity as people who get to boldly walk into the throne room of God is worth fighting for, is worth standing for. Give us Your Spirit. The same Spirit that empowered women like Esther. The same Spirit that inspired men like Mordecai. Make us men and women who stand on Your promises. The promises guaranteed to us by the shed blood of our righteous King Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.